What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, July 16th, 2021. Super excited to have all of you guys here. What's up to Eric Russell, Vin Albert in the house, man. Super excited to have all you guys here. Shout out to everybody tuning in live on LinkedIn, Twitch, and YouTube. If you guys got questions, go ahead and drop them right there in the chat and we will get to you. Hopefully you got an opportunity to tune into the episode I released today, release an episode with the one and only James Altisher. Uh, this is one that I was super pumped for, uh, super excited. It's been sitting in the backlog for literally six months. I recorded that episode six months ago. Uh, so I've just been itching to get it out and release it. Um, and it's finally out there. Hopefully you guys got a chance to tune in. I really enjoyed it. James Altisher is a, a huge impact on me, huge influence on me. I, I definitely totally respect that guy. Um, so let's go ahead and, and get it get it going, man. If you guys have questions, let me know right there in the chat. I think Vin has a question. All right. Uh, let's go to let's go to Vin's question. Go for it. Yeah, I got a, a really easy question. So building out a <clears throat> I've got a language model. It's already built in English. And there are other language corpus that are corp by corpuses that I'm going to extend it out to. Is there Anybody got any cool research papers you can drop in the chat for me to take a look at to preserve some of the structure of the original model? And it's it's 100% custom. You know, I could obviously retrain it uh, using a, the corpus from a different language, but are there any cool research papers I should be looking at or anything I can uh, take a look at that's maybe a shortcut approach? Because obviously I don't have as much data in every other language. So uh, the the basics of what I need to do from one language to another is the same. I mean, it's almost like the the model just needs to understand how to translate. So if anybody's got any cool research that I can read or take a look at or any, uh, you know, aside from the stuff that's out there from Hugging Face and, and Google and everything else. But if anybody has anything, I would really appreciate it. Looking for maybe a creative approach. That was going to be my first uh, suggestion was some of the stuff by Hugging Face and Google. Um, yeah, if anybody got any suggestions, go ahead and let us know. Drop it in the, the chat or just unmute yourself and let us know. Um, I'd be interested to to learn about that too. I just started learning more and more about NLP just over the last couple of weeks. It's super fascinating, man. Really, really enjoy that um, that space. And that's something that I'm trying to drill down into and get really good at and knowledgeable about. But man, what a what a huge field it is. Um, so yeah, if anybody has any insider information for Vin. Go ahead and uh, drop it right there in the chat. Uh, I'll see what I can come up with. I'll shoot you a you know message uh, over the weekend when I do some research. Um, but yeah, man, super excited to have all you guys here. Um, I, I guess let's kick it off with a question then, huh? Let's get this conversation warmed up. Um, so I was thinking about how to kick this 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 off. Uh, it's been been a long week for me, dude. I've done tons of interviews this week. Um, it's, it's crazy. Uh, but I'm wondering, what is your favorite question? to ask in an interview so if you are somebody who's been in the position of a hiring manager what's your favorite question to ask candidates when they're in an interview and and why is that your favorite question to ask what is it that you're hoping to get from someone um, by asking that question on the flip side if you have not been in a hiring manager type of position what is your favorite question to ask the interviewer so, you know, at the end of the interview, there's typically that that period of, oh, do you have any questions for us? What's your favorite question to, to ask in that situation? 
I uh, definitely want to go ahead and uh, hear all of you guys' responses. Um, let's let's kick it off with Russell, then go to Vin, and then we'll see uh, we'll see if anybody else has uh, any insight. Definitely would love to hear from Albert and Eric and uh, everybody else. I'll restate the question for you guys uh, later, but essentially it's this: What's your favorite question to ask a candidate in an interview? Why is that your favorite question? What is it that you're hoping to get out of the candidate? On the flip side, if you haven't been like a hiring manager in a hiring manager type of position, what's your favorite question to ask during the, um, do you have any questions for us type of uh, uh, phase of the interview? Russell, go for it. Evening all. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Great. Um, so one of the questions I like to ask most um, when hiring is uh, talking to the candidate and say, you obviously, um, uh, know about the company, you like the company, hence you're here. What's one thing that the company could do to make it that you couldn't turn down this position? You know, what's one field they could be in, one, what's one action they could do? And anything that you're not aware of already that they could add to their um, repertoire that would make it almost impossible for you to turn down the position and get some feedback from them. And I think in, in two ways, that allows you to understand how much they understand about the company so far. But it also brings in a, a, an external perspective that you may not have considered before that can give you some additional insight for progression of the uh, of the organization. I like that. That's a good question to ask. I like the, the rationale behind asking that. Um, Vin, what about you? What's your favorite question to ask um, uh, a candidate when they're, when they're coming into the interview? Mine's kind of generic, but this one's been a go-to for years for me. And it's, tell me about a project that you've completed end-to-end. Just start to finish. And it works, you know, from the junior level for somebody who's just graduated from college, they can talk about an independent project all the way out to very, very senior. You know, you can talk about pieces of what you did. Obviously, NDAs kind of stop you from going all the way into any sort of proprietary work, but you can talk about some of the accomplishments, some of the achievements. And it's such an open-ended question that allows for a discussion. You know, I can stop them and ask them questions about a uh, like a methodology that they used. Why'd you do this? How would you improve? You know, and it, it becomes conversational and the whole interview then is talking about stuff. They know, not me asking questions that maybe they know, maybe they don't know the answer. Maybe they're having a rough day. I mean, nobody forgets a great project that they worked on. And so it's one of those that I just, it's easy. It sets the tone for an interview and I get a lot. I mean, a whole lot of really good responses and I get a good feel for the candidate. Yeah, honestly, that's also my favorite question to ask too, something along the lines of talk, talk to me about your favorite project. I've had that question asked to me in, in a number of different ways. Like I've had somebody ask me the same thing, like what's the, what's the most interesting and end project you've done? I had somebody ask me what's the most challenging and um, you know, just what's your favorite project? I think in any of those situations, no matter what, like if you're preparing for an interview, just have one project you could talk about it at great length, in great depth, in great detail from any angle. You could defend any question that comes. You could talk about it inside out, upside down, wherever. Um, just always have that one story ready for you. Uh, I made the mistake of, of answering a question. Tell me about the most challenging project you had. And I actually did talk about the most challenging one that failed. Um, in hindsight, I was like, man, I probably should have just used my canned uh, response that I use for, for, you know, tell me about your favorite project type of question. Um, but yeah, shout out to everybody that just joined Vivian. Good to see you again. Albert got his camera on, uh, Eric Spencer. What's up everybody. So question is what's your favorite question to ask in an interview? If you're a hiring manager, tell us about that. If you are in the interview process, uh, talk to us about your favorite 
question to ask the interviewers. Eric, let's hear from you. Okay, so I kind of have like two. Um, the first is just a short one. And that was at a previous role, I was working in like sales and marketing stuff. But because it was a small company, I was kind of also the de facto tech support guy. And and I got asked all sorts of like goofy questions. Or one time somebody gave, had a little Bluetooth keyboard and they were like, I cannot get this Bluetooth keyboard to connect to my computer. Can you help me? And so I like went and I fiddling with it for a while. And then I realized it was not a Bluetooth keyboard. It was a USB keyboard and the USB thing was gone. And so it was like, I'm going to remember this for later. And so when a few months later, when we decided to hire a tech support person, they, uh, I was, I brought the keyboard in as well as a few other things. Cause it's like, you don't know what kind of tech, like what job are you getting into? Like complex tech support or like this kind of tech support or what? So I just gave her the keyboard and I said, can you connect this to your laptop for me? And just watch to see how she did. And she did fine. She, she wasn't able to do it either. I would have been really surprised if she was. Um, but uh, just to like follow that, that process and see <clears throat> what, that, what that person did and, and just kind of get inside their head, right? Which actually kind of goes along with my, kind of my favorite question. And that is, I just asked, what do you like to do at work? Uh, because I want to know the kinds of things you're into. Like if somebody asked me what I like to do, I would tell them something like, I like to do like process improvement stuff and process automation. Like I get super jazzed about making things like streamlined and flow really well. And I hate doing anything that has to do with like tracking expenses for my, you know, like I would be a terrible accountant, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so it just like helps me get inside their head and they can kind of get inside or get inside the way that I approach processes and same for me to them. So that's what I like to do. What do you like to do? I like that that question. That's a great question to end on, right? Like like my variation of that question, um, you know, when it's my turn to ask questions in an interview, I always try to squeeze in, what do you love most about working here? It's very kind of analogous to what do you like about the work you do here? Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is just that it's like the the nobody's going to nobody's going to feel upset about talking about things they love, right? So they're going to leave the interview in an upbeat, positive kind of tone. They're going to associate that mood and feeling with you. Then there's the recency effect. So even if like the beginning half of your interview kind of was shaky, all they're really going to remember and take away is that at the end, you made them feel good because you asked what they love. Uh, so that's a great. Yeah. And, and like on the interviewer side, it's also nice because like sometimes you're talking to somebody and so like the last person that I was interviewing, I was like the fourth person that they were talking to. Right. And so they're either tired or they've been like, maybe they might feel intimidated or whatever, you know, and then I walk in, I'm not super intimidating. And so it's like, I just want like to ask you a question to like get to know you and you can loosen up and relax. And then hopefully I get to see the best self that you have to offer. Yeah. Absolutely. Love that, man. Vivian, what about you? What what is your favorite question to ask in an interview? What you know, if you're if you're the hiring manager, what's what's the question you like to ask candidates and why? But if you're on the flip side, if you're in an interview and, and you got that that round of, you know, asking questions, what's your go-to and why? Um, well, I thought of, I guess, asking as an interviewer, I always like to ask kind of what's the greatest, what are the company's greatest challenges and what are like your team's greatest challenges? And I know that's kind of the opposite of the question that you just said of like putting people in a good mood because they're talking about what they love. But like, um, I feel like the challenges question though is a great way to like find any red flags 
um, and like get a better sense of like the culture and, and what, you know, what, like if you get to ask it of like, you know, the hiring manager, you can get a sense of kind of like, you know, how they manage things better and stuff. And also it opens up an opportunity for you, like as the, the person in a place of hiring to also like have something to bring in of like, oh, I can solve that for you, you know, kind of thing and, and brag about yourself. But I, so I feel like it's a great, it's a great question because it can put you in a great position to, uh, you know, set yourself up as a good candidate and also be really telling as well as like figuring out, you know, what this, what the culture of this place is like kind of thing. So that's yeah. one of my favorites. I like that. It's a good approach as well. Uh, Albert, what's going on, man? Good to see you here. Uh, so, so you're, you're in the, uh, the car office, I see. Uh, yeah. Good to be seen. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah this is different than the usual. This is not the mobile analytics unit. This is, uh, analytics this unit, is my yes. wife's pilot. So <laughs> yeah, I, so I'm definitely on the other side from, uh, most of you guys, <clears throat> but the, the one that I kind of go to a lot and in, in kind of me fashion, I like to, I have to almost make it a little awkward. Um, I don't have a, a certain way of asking it. I kind of have to feel the person out, but it's along the lines of the, what do you love about this company? Um, but usually if I, if I feel like they're giving me kind of a line of shit, then I, um, it, you know, I'll kind of reframe it and just say, Hey, you, you clearly, you know, you're in a managerial or directorial position here. You've got some mobility and freedom. I'm sure you've had offers to go work other places. Why do you work here? Like, why, why do you stay? Um, and then usually they'll kind of cut the crap and, you know, if they, if you get a little pointed and weird about it, um, then you'll kind of get below the surface layer. And then they say, well, it's, you know, my team is amazing or, you know, the organizational or the, the potential ad advancement or, you know, then they'll start getting out of brass tacks and what, what really um, makes them keen to come into work every day. Um, and that, and <laughs> if they keep it up and, you know, and keep kind of giving you the fluff, then it's like, okay, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like these, like the last few questions have been heavy on trying to just assess the culture of the company, make sure it's the right place for you. Um, so I like these types of questions as well. Uh, shout out to everybody that just joined. What up, Matt Blaza? What's up, Greg? What's up, Dylan? So happy to see you guys here. Asha, happy to see you here on a, on a Friday. And usually you're, you're here on Sundays, man. Good to see you. Uh, Dylan, man, let's hear from you. Uh, what's, what's your favorite question to ask in an interview? Uh, Greg, I'm going to come to you next. So uh, let me know uh, if you got the question down. Um, if somebody could type it out for Greg in the chat, that'd be great. By the way, if anybody else has questions, we're, we're taking them. Let me know in the chat. Let me know on uh, the comments on LinkedIn, on YouTube, wherever you're watching this. Um, yeah, there's billions of you out there watching this. So you should have a question. Go for it, Dylan. Yeah, for sure. Um, I actually like to ask about data engineering. So I've been working as a data analyst for quite a few years now. And the one thing that I always get frustrated with is joining a role where I'm expected to provide business value. And then, you know, first six months, you're just trying to get a couple of fields into SQL. Um, so really just kind of digging in there. Uh, and one way to kind of dig in further is just like asking the maturity of the team and finding out how big that team is. If they say they've got 10 analysts and like one data engineer, then I get nervous and I run away. Um, so that's really kind of my, uh, my favorite one to ask there. And I'm not usually on the other side of the table yet. So. I'll leave that for some of the more experienced people. 
Oh man, that's that's honestly because I, I applied for a lot of roles that are like you know they tend to just be the first data scientist that they're hiring, and uh, that's one of the first questions I ask is, do you have plans to hire a data engineer, or do you have any data engineering capability on deck already? Because uh, we hope you don't expect one person to do everything. Um, that is a company I would run the other direction from. Uh, let's uh, hear from Greg, then Matt, and then uh, uh, Matt Blasa. That is uh, the only Matt, um, and. If you guys have questions, go ahead, let me know. Um, I've got a couple questions rolling in through LinkedIn. Christine Seagrave, I'll get to your question in a second. But Greg, let's uh, let's hear from you. Yeah, um, how's it going, guys? Uh, so to make sure I get the, I got the question right, it's uh, what are the questions um, to ask during an interview as an interviewee? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, e either or, like you know, you're probably on the the hiring manager type of thing. So if 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 uh, if you got like, a candidate coming in, you're assessing, you know, their qualifications, whatever. You're just trying to get a feel of the candidate. What's your favorite question to ask uh, a candidate, and why? Uh, and if you want to share on the flip side, like if you're in an interview, um, what's your favorite question to ask, like the interviewers? Yeah, sure. Um, if uh, I'll start with the flip side. So if I'm uh, being interviewed. Um, I'd like to ask uh, a few questions. One for sure is about the current position. Um, sometimes uh, a lot of hires like to hide the fact that they need somebody to kill fires uh, versus uh, um, hiring somebody to transform uh, their organization. So meaning the person who's going to join will be focusing on projects that will uh, really transform for the long term, et cetera, et cetera, versus somebody just left now, it's, there's a vacancy, uh, there's a lot of fires to kill, they just secretly want to hire someone who's going to continue to do manual work, checking things and stuff like that. So I like to ask uh, certain questions about the position, about the, uh, you know, 70% of the time, what are the things that I will be focusing on, uh, what kind of projects and things that I have a feel for, how transformative these projects are related uh, related to the position in the department I'm trying to join. Then um, another part of that too, I like to ask about um, uh, risk, and I, I think Russell, you put a question that's similar to that in the in the in the conversation. Um, so when there's a, a a situation where there were a mistake that was made that was costly, what were the key learnings? And uh, how was it, uh, you know, how the learning came about, uh, who was responsible, what happened to the person who made the mistake, uh, how was the person coached and things like that. So those are the questions that I like to ask around uh, uh, those, those errors. And then the third one is about uh, taking risk. I like to analyze how risky a, a hire is about uh, bringing new innovation. So when you're bringing somebody in, you want that person to bring that outside set of eyes, uh, bringing new ideas, fresh ideas and things like that. So uh, are they open to someone coming in and, uh, uh, you know, challenging the status quo and coming up with things that they never thought about? How is that received? Uh, how is the culture around innovation and things like that? So those are the questions that I like to, to, to focus on. Now, if I'm the hirer, um, let me think about this real quick. Um, one question I like to ask about it, I, I'm a really big fan of situational questions. Um, that helps me learn about why someone made a decision and why uh, uh, the, uh, uh, 
the decision was made this way. So what I like to get from these answers are, you know, what pushed you, how did you make the balance between intuition and also uh, uh, the knowledge that you have about a subject that made you make a decision? And also I like to reflect from the candidate how they were able to convince a team of stakeholders that their decision was right. So in other words, I focus a lot on those situational questions, regardless of the problem. I love to extract those type of answers about how well the person is able to uh, come up with something that makes sense and also convince others that this is a strategy to move forward. And if it doesn't work, here's plan B or here's what we will try to mandate or to correct it and things like that. So I know it's a little bit, on the cloud here, my my uh, 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 on this side, but this is what I like to focus on extracting from somebody being interviewed. These are all great questions, man. I hope you guys are taking notes that are listening on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitch, on the podcast. Um, those of you guys listening live on LinkedIn, don't worry, this is recorded. We'll be hosted on the podcast in a matter of you know forty eight hours or so. Um, so definitely go back and listen to this. All great advice, Matt. Let's hear from you, and then we're going to start getting into some questions. Um, I've got questions lined up from. Um, from Albert, from Eric. I've actually got a question um, from Nisha that she had sent me on Slack. So I guess we'll go to Nisha's question first, then Albert, then Eric's. Um, And Christine, I've got your question here on LinkedIn. So maybe we'll do Christine's question because it's directly related to what we're talking about here. Um, And yeah, that'll kind of be the flow. Uh, Mr. Blaza, my friend, go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't been on the site. I haven't been on the the hiring manager interviewing on the, um, data science side did it in marketing but that's completely different um as far as trying to ask questions as an interviewee i coming from a marketing background i'm usually always asking about company dynamics because the communication is super essential because you you can get siloed from you can get super siloed really really easily so one of the questions i usually ask is like how do they relate to the departments so like how do they communicate the requirements how do you ask what do you do when there's like a fire that has to be put out. Um, sometimes I've had an experience in the past where I've worked with companies and they they would be a great data science team. You'd have like the data analyst, then you'd have the engineer, but these guys would never talk to like anyone else. I mean, you would list, exist in an isolation and then find out later, oh, there was a fire that you had to put out because Pixel wasn't firing on Google Analytics or um, data wasn't ingesting properly from some source. So the communication is very important to me because like that saves not only saves me problems from dealing with stuff later, but also saves documentation and saves a lot of time and money from having to go back and do it over again. So um, I'm always, always asking when I'm in an interview, like, how do you communicate? How do you relate to other departments? Because it's really easy to get siloed. These are all great questions. and these are questions that were really, if you were to ask these questions in an interview, it's it, like you'd stand out, I think, from, from the crowd by asking these type of questions. So um, definitely, definitely great advice from everyone here. Uh, let's go quickly to uh, Christine Seagrave's question from uh, LinkedIn. She's saying, if an interviewer asks you about data mining, should you ask how do employees normally mine data? Do companies have a standard process of data mining or ethical practice for data collection. Uh, in terms of standard process for data mining, that's the CRISP DM, uh, cross-industry standard process for data mining. I think that's what that stands for. Um, 
that's one thing um, I can think of off the top of my head. Ben, what do you think? Um, how would you uh, answer this question? I guess what's the, uh, I'm, I'm hearing a bunch of different questions in there. Is the, what, what's the key question, I guess? What are the frameworks for data gathering and data mining? Yeah, I think like, so. Like she, she's asking if an interviewer asks you about data mining, should you ask how do employees normally mine data? I guess that trying to unpack that question there. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a, it's a tough one, but I, I think that's what she's asking is like, how do you, how do you talk about a standard process, I guess, or your standard process? Um, if they're asking you to give them a standard process, that's a pretty advanced question because that's a, you know, you're going straight into data governance there and what are you data mining from? And I mean, that's a, that's a loaded question to answer because there are so many, I would be asking more questions and taking most of the interview, trying to figure out why they would ask me that question. That would kind of, yeah. I mean, outside of giving a couple of generic frameworks, uh, pointing back to data governance frameworks. I, yeah. That that's one of those questions that if I got in an interview, I would be asking more follow-up questions because yeah. anytime you start talking about data mining, I mean, what do you, are you mining it from processes? Are you mining it from websites? Are you mining it from, you know, you, yeah, there's, there's a lot there. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, Christine, um, I, I would look up crisp DM if that's something that you're interested in. It sounds like you might benefit from learning about that. I will go ahead and keep it rolling. Um, when I asked Nisha's question that she sent on Slack, kind of relevant to what we're talking about here. Uh, her question is, how long does a data science interview process take from start to finish? Is it a couple of months or is it days? How's it different in startups versus midsize versus FANG versus state versus federal jobs? She wants to know all the different cross sections. Uh, she's asking for a friend of hers who's graduating in 2022 and is wondering when she should start applying. Well, I'm just going to assume this friend of yours is you, uh, Nisha, and I would say start applying as soon as possible. Um, as in terms of like the the job search process, like I mean, I've seen I've seen it take anywhere from like two weeks to six weeks that's kind of been my standard range um that's time frame i typically tend to uh to to assign to it mark what about you what do you think uh for me the last time i did a job search it took me about a month but i think a key thing you could do to accelerate that is try to always have at least two interviews signed lined up because they're gonna ask like hey are you interviewing anywhere else you're like yeah i'm interviewing at this really this other company i have a have my next interview next week. You know, uh, I'm really interested in this role. If you can accelerate this process, that'd be great. So you'd kind of turn the tables um, on that a little bit, which was which many times accelerates it because they're like, hey, this is a good candidate. We want to move fast. Um, my experience has only been in startups. So there's less bureaucratic red tape <laughs> many times uh, for that. So they can possibly move things a, a little bit faster. And I think the key thing too is, you know, how do you define when it starts? Is it from the time you sent the application? versus the time you first had a uh, first round interview, like a phone screen. Um, I, I, would, I, would, I would say like from phone screen, it just really dependent on the company. If, if they have their stuff together and know exactly what they're looking for, um, it can be two things. Either you're the right fit and they wanna move really fast or they're really picky and they may take their time to identify people. So I think it's so dependent on the company and the timing. I've, I've realized like, 
to not associate the data science job search with myself, but more so like what's the right timing for things. That's been the main drivers, like beyond the skill set. The skill set just opens the door, but does the timing allow for it to be a good fit for both of us? How do you uh, how do you kind of gauge that like that that timing and, and judging if it's a good fit? Like if you were in a situation, let's say like you know graduating in twenty twenty two, which is like five months away or six months away, or whatever. Um, like when would you start applying? For, for roles? I would start applying, especially as a student, I feel like you have a little bit more leverage in the sense of that you have a more flexible timeline. So be, people will like hire you ahead of time, um, depending if they're looking for like certain cohorts for like er, new new grads. Um, so like, for example, like my first job out of grad school, I had my job in February, graduated like in, in June. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some jobs are like that. But another key thing too is like, for me, my whole thought process is that I'm just gonna bomb my first three interviews. So <laughs> I'm just saying, get those out of the way, especially if I'm rusty. Like I remember I, uh, my first time interviewing again for my last, last round of interviewing, I interviewed for this company that I thought was just, I thought it was just going to be a casual conversation with the hiring manager and it ended up being a one hour conversation about the intricacies of data science. And I just forgot everything. I even, I didn't even know what min max scaling was. I, I just completely forgot it. And I was like, yep, I'm not getting hired there. Right. And so. I think if anything, start early so you can get like all the failures out of the way and you can just get into the flow because like the data science job search doesn't really align with the job itself. So you have to pick up this whole new skill again of, of doing these brain teasers and case studies and, and jumping through these hoops. Yeah, man. Like the data science job search process is a freaking gauntlet. It is difficult. It's uh, it's grueling, man. One hell of an experience. Um, in in my experience, I've seen the typical flow be like, you know, HR kind of phone screen, then maybe like a, a quick tech screen, quick meaning, you know, typically one to three hours for, for a screen. And, uh, and then from there, meeting people, then a take-home assignment, and then more meetings of people. It's, it's grueling, man. It's tough. Um, Mikiko, let's hear from you. I thought I saw you here. Hey, Oh, yes, there you are. Hey, how's it going, Makiko? Hey. So, um, yeah, you got some good comments here about the uh, the job search process. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to echo everyone's like thing about start as early as possible. It's also a little bit uneven. So for me, I've like literally pivoted three times. Um, so I felt like it was a little bit of a hard go for me, like the first month or two of applying because I was literally switching uh I was switching focuses and I actually had to like reskill in some of those areas as I was interviewing. So I think it's good to, in some ways, do it in like two phases. Uh, you do the first phase where you're gathering as much information as possible without necessarily like kind of burning any potential bridges that you are really interested in. Um, that's when you have those conversations and that's when you find out that, you know, you're missing a ton of stuff or maybe uh, what you're missing is the right messaging. So once you collect all that feedback, then you can, you can kind of like coalesce it and then figure out like, okay, like what are, you know, the top two or three hot points that you need to be like deeply going down. So most recently when I was making the transition from a data scientist to a machine learning engineer, um, I had kind of overloaded a six month sort of study plan with like, God, it's embarrassing now. Um, like, you know, multivariate exper- experimentation, like Java, C++, autonomous vehicles. Um, you know, what they really cared about was like, do you know how to do like a Git pull release? Um, do you test your code? Can you do 
Python, can you do SQL? Um, do you love managed services in the form of GCP AWS, right? So like I had this plan and then I would go to the interviews, I'd get murdered, just slaughtered. Um, and then I'd go, okay, let's cross this off the list of things I'm not gonna cover and then bump up everything else. I think it's kind of like, you just need to get those first jitters out of the way because data science interviews are just, they're, they're wacko a little bit. Um, then you kind of can recollect, go, okay, let me focus deeply on these like two or three trouble spots. And then when you get back out there, you'll be surprised at like the number of opportunities you get. My first two and a half months of the machine learning engineering job search, I was applying, I was not hearing anything. It was like, crap, like, am I doing something wrong? Applied for some data science interviews, got those interviews. So it's like, okay, maybe it's just the way I'm messaging it. The minute I was able to fix that like bottleneck, suddenly I, had like one week I had nine interviews, which was hectic, um, including text screens, uh, on screen, all that. And then within a period of three or four days, uh, I got three and a half offers. Uh, so it's, it's very uneven, the job search. It, it really, really is. But usually there's just this like one bottleneck that's in your interview process that if you can unlock it, it will just massively increase your conversion rate, like down the, down the line. So that's kind of, you know, start early, prepare for the first at-bats, just be bad, you know, um, and collect the feedback, turn into an actionable plan, and then, you know, execute and then get back up there, get up to bat. I love that, that conversion rate um, thinking and, and the way you're going about that. Thank you very much for, for sharing that, Mikiko. And speaking of bottlenecks, I think there's one bottleneck that happens at the top of every interview, and it's this tell me about yourself question, which Dylan has brought up here. Uh, Dylan, let's. Uh, I'd love your comment here. Go ahead and, and uh, t talk to us about what you're talking about here. And then how about this, man? Why don't you give us your, your tell me about yourself, and then I want to hear Eric's tell me about yourself, and then I'll tell you mine. Uh, because this is important, man. This is, the, this is a hard... Um, it's 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 hard to get right and it sets the tone for the entire interview uh dylan so go for it yeah um so i started having people reach out like a year or two ago when i started posting on linkedin just asking to hear my story and yeah you kind of start forming the parts of it that you like and you don't like um kind of almost like Nikiko said like i don't like this part so i'm going to throw it out and bring this new piece in um, and so for me, it was really just talking to more and more people as well, just like friends back when I was in my old role and now new role, explaining that to them. Um, do I even remember mine now? It's very much like, hi, I'm, I'm Dylan. Um, I've been a data analyst for the last four years, worked in the CPG industry. Um, I used to have kind of a list of projects that I worked on, but I don't even remember them now. I'm just kind of following along there. And then usually just talking a little bit about like, I'm really passionate about machine learning. And while that's something that I haven't gotten to do in a role before, that's something that I study a lot of my own uh, as well, trying to be as um, active as I can in the data science community. And then you can see, you know, here's my posting on LinkedIn. Unfortunately today, right now, you know, in this conversation shows the, the activity. Um, so that kind of shows both sides of it. One, the prior work experience, and then two, the interest so that, if there is a hiring manager that's looking at you and they're saying, oh, well, maybe they don't have the right skills. If you show that you're passionate about those things, which is something, Arpreet, I know you've talked about so many times is passion. Um, they're a lot more likely to hire you and say, well, maybe they don't have all the skills, but they're willing to learn. Um, so yeah, that's fine. 
Yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that point up, man. Uh, this it should be interesting. I want to hear everybody just tell me about yourself now. This this was going to go down. So let's go. Let's go to Eric, and then uh, let's hear Eric's spiel because he said you had one written down. Then uh, I'll do my spiel. Then we'll go to Mark because he has his hand raised. But you're gonna have to give us your tell me about yourself spiel, Mark, before you you uh, you go for it. All right, all right. Well, I'm like panicking inside. I feel like I'm in an interview all over again. <laughs> <clears throat> so. I would say, let's see, how do I start? So yeah, Eric, last time I was interviewing, I was in the master's of analytics at North Carolina State. And then this is something I'm just going to call out before I keep going. For people who don't come from a technical background, listen to this part because this is something we've talked about a lot here. So I I say for the past several years, I've worked in a lot of different industries. I've worked in academia, local government, manufacturing, um, sales and marketing, lots of different stuff. And the reason that I am interested in like this role and in analytics in general is because in all my different roles, wherever I go, I end up finding data or the data finds me. That's like a just like a little phrase that I just made up once upon a time. I need to trademark it and get a nickel anytime somebody copies it. Um, but anyway, saying that because then it's I can say that's what that's what's happened. And once upon a time, a couple of years ago, I had a phone conversation with a guy who said we keep talking about marketing and you keep talking about marketing data, you could do that. Like you could be a marketing analyst and work with data all the time. And that was what made me decide that I wanted to get into this program and pursue that path. And so here I am now. And so um, basically I just kind of say that and then just throw in that, you know, my interests specifically a project I've worked on are dealing with creating a good data pipeline that improved that automated about 90 to 95% of our data entry for our sales and marketing process. And it's what I love to do. And I want to do it for, you know, whatever company or tie it into something like that, that um, is relevant to the interview. Oh, man, I love it. I'm, I'm glad this was uh, kicked off. So so I'll, I'll do mine. This is my standard spiel. I squeeze this canned response. It's, it's canned, but it's the truth. It's my story, right? Uh, it's the response that I give every anytime where there's tell me about yourself or whatever. Top of the interview, I just try to make this this happen. And and uh, it goes like this. Uh, well, I like to answer this question by by talking about kind of my why. Why is it that I'm in data science? Why is it that I'm in this space? And it's because I want to help people make better decisions. And the way I see myself doing that is by being part of a team that develops data products that allow my stakeholders or clients to interact with data and information so they see the whole picture instead of just parts of it. And when I say data product, that could be anything from dashboard, dynamic dashboard, static report. It could be a model serving predictions, just anything that is going to facilitate the decision-making process for my stakeholders. The way I see myself being a contributing member to a team that does this type of work is through what I think is my unique combination of education, skills, and experience. In terms of education, studied math, statistics, economics at the undergraduate, graduate level, taken several actuarial exams. So I have a really strong foundation, all the basics that makes it so I'm just unafraid of anything you throw at me. Like I can go learn anything new without being afraid of it. Um, In terms of technical skills, currently Python is my bread and butter language of choice. I'm comfortable with the modern data science stack in in, uh, Python, NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn, PyTorch. I'm comfortable working out of, you know, Linux command line. That's so much fun for me. I love that. I'm comfortable with uh, Airflow and Docker and also um, SQL, pretty good at SQL. Um, just the, the tools of the trade, I'm, I'm comfortable using them. I'm not a, not scared to learn anything new that I need to learn just because it's this is kind of a mindset. Um, and I feel like I understand how to use one tool. I can learn any tool. 
Uh, in terms of work experience, I've worked uh, as an actuary in the insurance industry, worked as a biostatistician in the pharmaceutical industry, worked as a data scientist in e-commerce, and I'm currently a data scientist in manufacturing. So I feel like this, I've just seen it all. I've seen so many different types of problem statements, and it's given me a good framework to match a solution strategy with a problem type. And I think that's what my varied experience has um, given me an opportunity to do. I got some extracurricular stuff on the side as well. Uh, host of a you know decent podcast called the Artist of Data Science. I also do mentoring on the side at this uh, at this you know coaching mentorship platform for data scientists. I've been doing that for two and a half years, and that's an interesting experience because again, I get exposed to so much. I get to see so many different problem statements because I'm helping students work on take home assignments, helping them work on um, the projects and, and things like that. And so I think it's this unique combination of education skills and technical experience that really separate me from whoever else it is that you're interviewing for this very job. And that's how I, every time, and you can tell, like, I just practice this. It's just, I can do it in my, in my, in my sleep. Uh, Mark, go for it. I wasn't planning on giving my pitch. Um, I'll, I'll promise I'll give that. But one of the key things I'm currently interviewing uh, um, not interviewing for companies, but being an interviewer at my company uh, for data science roles. And we asked this question, uh, I think any, any, I think one of the key things that I just want to note is like, have your messaging down and don't ramble. I've seen the biggest pitfall from this phone screen I do every time is someone takes up a long time for this question. And then I have to cut out structured questions from the interview. And that just docks off opportunities for you to kind of sell yourself. So if you can get this down, you, you're set up for success for the rest of the interview. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, but I guess, I guess mine, um, you know, the way I do, I, I do a more so linear my journey into, into this role. Uh, but I say, you know, my data science journey started off in grad school where I studied community health and prevention research at Stanford Medicine. You know, at first I thought I was going to be a doctor and that's why I was at that master's program. But being at the School of Medicine, being processed to the classes, I realized grad school was not for me. And I couldn't do four more years of this. So I completely shifted. And so I had this skill set in R, uh, statistics, uh, experimental design, um, and also being exposed to tech being at Stanford, I realized like data science is actually something I could do and was actually very interested in. So from that point on, I decided to pursue data science. Surprisingly, my first job out of my master's wasn't in a data role, it was in operations. But I was still passionate about data science. So on the train ride to and from work, I taught myself Python and started automating all my workflows and my operations role. So all those Excel tasks, and I shared those scripts with my colleagues. They started using it. In addition, I picked up a second job as a data analyst back at Stanford while I was working in operations to kind of dip my toes, see if I really want to pursue this career. Turns out I absolutely loved it. Got to do some analyses, got published, and uh, really refined my R skills and communicating those data statistics narratives. From there, I realized I want to go full in on this. So I quit those jobs, did a data science bootcamp. And one of my first jobs as a data scientist was at a company called Verona Health, where I worked with massive electronic health record data sets, where I worked with, we had 80% of all electronic, electronic health records in the US for ophthalmology. So billions of records to use Spark, SQL. Um, and I specifically helped our sales team um, better understand our data assets to sell to pharmaceutical companies. Um, unfortunately, I was laid off from that job in the middle of the pandemic, but it was the best thing ever because I found my next job, Humu, uh, which ended up being one of the best things. Even though it wasn't in healthcare, it was around behavior change. And I got to basically do my dream of data science where I, one, 
build data products that are production level that go to our uh, go to our end users. Two, I do product analytics that help drive product decisions with our VP of product. And three, I build data infrastructure for our startup to help define, you know, what does our uh, data warehouse looks like and also build access to our data company-wide. And so those are my three main responsibilities. In the future, I'm mainly looking for how can I build even better data products at scale, including machine learning. And that's why I'll be interested in this role and let's talk about how I can potentially drive value for your company. Absolutely love it, man. This is great. Um, I, if anybody else would like to share their story, I'd be happy to hear it. I mean, me in particular, I'd be really excited to hear uh, hear Vin and Greg's responses to the, to these type of questions. So if you guys want to share that, please do um, uh, go for it, uh, Vin or, or, or Greg. <laughs> Greg, go for it, Greg. So uh, this is um, some some sort of a pitch, right? Yeah, yeah, like kind of like in the interview where you have like that. Tell me about yourself. Walk me through your resume. Kind of like you know your, I guess I love it. Yeah, pitch, pitch. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. So this is gonna be the most non-technical, right? So um, uh, I do I do have more than uh, ten years of experience, of experience, and I started in uh, manufacturing. Uh, being in manufacturing has helped me uh, understand uh, the requirements that companies need uh, to follow uh, based on their business models to input, uh, um, to transform and output a solution or a product for customers who are interested uh, or going through certain pain points. And uh, with that, uh, with my background as an industry engineer, uh, uh, with a focus on uh, uh, supply chain and operations research, uh, I've always gone to data to understand root causes of uh, uh, defects or uh, poor uh, mechanisms that uh, uh, hinder uh, the optimal solution that we're focusing on for the customers. And with that, I've had the opportunities to uh, implement uh, different solutions that are based on statistical control analysis uh, or uh, optimal supply chain uh, strategies to uh, allow uh, the service, uh, on-time service of uh, our customers so they can get products uh, when they need it, where they need it, et cetera. Uh, in return, we would build some uh, state-of-the-art uh, networks uh, to uh, know where to stage our products, our raw materials, when to buy, to strategically uh, put some uh, purchase, uh, uh, what do you say, um, uh, strategies with our vendors and also uh, knowing where to build and when to build warehouses. Now, with that, I transferred to uh, different positions where I was focusing on quality inside of manufacturing sites and even uh, after that became a product manager focusing on optimizing pricing for uh, my products. I was responsible for the value chain uh, of uh, a portfolio of products. And my role there was to understand what were the drivers of cost and what were the drivers of uh, price leakage and also price loss opportunity. And with that, I had a access to a vast amount of data about how pricing uh, our, how our pricing strategy was either helping us gain extra margin or lose margin to competitors or because we weren't able to serve the customers the way they expected us to serve them. And with that, I started being curious about how to manage and manipulate this data 
and taught myself how to use different tools, analytical, analytical tools, and even uh, taught myself how to uh, uh, use tools like Power BI to create dashboards that would help my stakeholders make decisions faster and uh, also be able to uh, create some quotes for customers uh, much faster and more accurately that would price them at the right level that would help them uh, make decisions quickly in terms of booking contracts for two years, three years, et cetera. Uh, that allowed me to create a compelling story for where I am today at Amazon. And uh, there uh, I uh, joined a culture that has been open to uh, innovation or uh, thinking big. And with that, I was able to surface some pain points in the company and uh, opened up the ideas of leveraging vast amount of data and even AI to tackle some uh, process that were previously manual and uh, use data to automate these processes. And with that, the focus was to make sure that through automation, we're ensuring that the customers using our products were being safe and that they were, uh, 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 you know, trusting uh, the way we did business in these uh, active geographies. I love it, man. I hope, again, hope everybody's taking notes, man. These are great ways to, to answer that tell me about yourself question. That is, that's, that's just talking about just straight delivering value. Like, this is what I've done. This, this is what I could do for you. I love that. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, Vin, what about you, man? Do you have like a, do you have like an elevator pitch or spiel? You sure you want me to do this one? Yeah. Hell yeah, man. Cause mine's totally different. It's like not even, I don't know if it's relevant. <laughs> Let's hear it, man. All right. Um, let me get into the zone. All right. Uh, 25 years in tech last 10 years in data science, machine learning, deep learning, advanced analytics, all of the, all the great buzzwords, uh, built and led teams at every phase of the software development lifecycle and the machine learning lifecycle. I work with clients from startups to fortune 100 companies. Uh, my approach built over the last 10 years has resulted in delivering products to market with revenue streams in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I help clients build out AI strategies from start to finish and help them realize their goals for both cost savings and revenue generation using my just end-to-end -end approach that starts with strategy, starts with transforming the business model, the operating model, providing an AI strategy, which rationalizes exactly why you're adopting the technology. It's going to help you understand the budgeting side of it. It's going to help you create a managed cadence. You're going to build out a value stream that you can manage so that you don't get sucked into the day-to-day -day workflow activities. So you as the C-suite and board of directors are going to be able to track these projects in a way that you track all the rest of them. So it's going to make sense. You're going to realize tangible returns on your investment. I'm going to help you do that at every phase from yeah, strategy planning, yeah, strategy implementation, execution planning. I'm going to help you build out your data and analytics organization. And I'm going to help you with the execution phase, actually creating the workflow and executing one end-to-end -end project. Hell yeah, man. That's, I, that's my sales pitch. That's, and that's why you guys should sign up for his course. I think you've got a session uh, this Tomorrow, right? You got a session tomorrow. And how often do you, you do this every two weeks or every three weeks, something like that? No, my next one is August 2nd and 3rd. August the, 2nd and 3rd. Yeah, the one for next week actually sold out. So yeah. it's and August 2nd and 3rd. It's worth it. I was in the, uh, a session a, a couple of weeks ago. I know Mark was as well. Austin Loveless was as well. Um, and that's why you guys should uh, take that course.
I just want to quickly note it changed the trajectory of my job and how I perceive it. Like the way I approach problems now and like I already have meetings with different leaders uh, to talk about data strategy and like how I frame things. Like it, it, this course is probably one of the best things you can do for your data career. Man, yeah, uh, 100% agree, man. Um, so that's great, man. Hopefully everybody's taking good notes here. Let's move on to the rest of the questions. I got questions from Albert, Eric, and then Mark. If anybody else has questions on any of the platforms where you're watching this, I'm keeping an eye out. So drop your question in the chat or if you're in this room and you have a question, uh, go for it. Um, Albert, let's uh, let's hear from you. Actually, first, you talked about how in the military you had to to they uh, they had you practice your spiel a hundred times. Uh, give us give us your quick spiel, and then let's jump into your question. Okay, yeah, no problem. Hopefully, my uh, my audio is not cutting out. I'm uh, I've changed locations. I'm over by my kids' ball field right now. But, it's um, perfect, perfect clear. Awesome. I I cut the video to uh, to up the audio. Um, yeah, so. 23 years in the in the Marine Corps, and throughout that, uh, I've been a data guy. I, I say that I'm the only Marine that smiles when he sees a spreadsheet. So I started out in logistics um, and was hashing through maintenance reports and and trying to explain those to uh, to commanders who didn't understand code, didn't understand maintenance life cycles, uh, and that sort of thing. About nine years in, we got ourselves into a war, and I decided I wanted to be an officer. So. Uh, I signed up for the artillery, which is uh, which is a lot more data heavy than you might think. Um, through my 14 years as, a, as an artillery officer, uh, served in some austere environments. Um, I doubt you've got anybody that uh, that has built visualizations in wood huts in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've done that. Um, to include in Afghanistan, I, uh, I I saw a gap in the operational, the way we were doing things uh, as we wound down in uh, in in. Uh, uh, not Anbar province, shoot. <laughs> I'm mixing up my Iraq and my Afghanistan. Um, in Helmand province, uh, we were over committing to certain areas. I developed a visualization for the operations officer so that he could see where our ops were overlapping um, and that he could spread out his efforts. Um, and that one slide saved millions of taxpayer dollars, potentially human lives. Um, after that, uh, I came back, I served at Headquarters Marine Corps. Headquarters Marine Corps, I was in charge of um, half of the Marines in the Marine Corps, moving them around the map and deciding where they were going to go, how to get them to re-enlist. So that's, you're talking 100,000 Marines, um, each on a four-year contract, each in a cohort that comes up every four years, and you have to figure out how to get them to re-enlist, how to get them to commit to the bases where they may or may not want to go in, in places that aren't necessarily so nice. Um, involves a lot of crunching of numbers and uh and that was a, a great challenge for me at the tail end of that i managed to go uh get accepted into a fellowship which is very selective only a certain number of marines were picked for it um and i got to go uh work with darpa and work on some of their uh advanced projects um some of which delved into the machine learning and robotics and automation and artificial intelligence fields um post that uh, I got myself a, a master's degree in analytics through Naval Postgraduate School. I paid back the Marine Corps for the time they invested in me. Um, and now I'm retiring, pivoting into analytics. In my free time, I, I love to work on a podcast and a YouTube channel. Incidentally, it's called How to Get an Analytics Job, which is why I was interested in it in the first place. Took over their LinkedIn page and I uh, 20 times multiplied their, uh, their followership thus far in about a six month period. So that's what I have to offer and bring to the table. Uh, my skill set 
involves some heavy Excel skills. Um, I am working on uh, developing my Tableau and R coding skills, uh, and I'm, I'm getting pretty good with SQL. And, you know, due to the adaptability and the environments that I've been through and the situations I've been put in, uh, I can handle any problem you throw at me. I love How's it. That? I love it. Absolutely love it, man. That was awesome. All right. Yeah, so it changes every time. That's good, man. I mean, it's a good structure. I like, I like the structure. And that's how you guys, that's, this is, these are all great examples of how to answer that tell me about yourself question. I feel like that is the bottleneck for so many people. And if you can get that down, it'll make your interviewing process so much more streamlined. You'll get so many more conversions. Um, but Albert, go for it, man. You got a question? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I've um, just in dealing with my time uh, on this internship that is that is now kind of wrapped. And I, I did some things with my LinkedIn posting where I, I kind of noticed that I was spending a shit ton of time um, in, in engagement and just you know, getting in conversations with people, some, some productive, some wonderful, some kind of, you know, not a waste of time, but, but, uh, you know, it, it didn't do a whole lot for me. And, you know, you get those people that just ask you like, Hey, how, what's your advice on getting into data analytics? Well, shit. I mean, where do I start? Um, I'm not actually in it currently, but, uh, you know, I could talk for days about that. So the more and more of those that I get, and the more and more time it seems to take to to sort of engage with people and and build your brand and build a network i'm just wondering the the people that have far more vast networks than me how do you guys budget your time uh when it comes to just just dealing with people and and you know and being nice and answering messages and uh and, and going on linkedin comment threads and and stuff like that you know being being men and women of the people if you will yeah, definitely. So, so uh, me personally, man, I, I don't respond to anybody. Like I get messages that won't respond or I'll respond with just a link to this very thing and say, you can come during these two times during the week and ask me whatever you want. Um, but I'm only available these two times um, and just do like a keyboard shortcut for that. Um, so that's that's my strategy to that. Um, in terms of posting and stuff like that, um, when you do see consistent posts from me, it's usually because I spent three hours on a Sunday and I scheduled out the entire week. Uh, when you don't see consistent posts from me, that means that I just, I forgot, or I just didn't have time to schedule it and I'll just sporadically randomly post stuff. Uh, Eric, what's your, what's your strategy? Cause you know, you are the uh, people's choice for LinkedIn. Yeah. So I don't schedule posts uh, because I can't think of stuff to say very far ahead of time. Usually, even though I have like a list of ideas, mostly it's for inspiration, not for scheduling. <clears throat> um, but for like staying in touch with people is I took a note from Greg Coquillo and I try to respond to every single comment on my posts. Um, because I know that that meant like the world to me when like Greg responds to my comments and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, it's Greg. You know? And so like that meant a lot to me. And so like, I want other people to feel seen like that, you know? And, and then the other pieces, I mean, as far as like balancing it, I guarantee I don't get as many messages as someone like Harpreet and company, but <clears throat> I try to, I just try to be realistic about it. Like I try to at least 
at least respond to pretty much everybody to at least say, you know, hey, when someone just says, hey, but I don't necessarily want to like lean into it and like try and make them have a conversation with me. And so, you know, if they, if they get to it and they want to have a conversation with me, I'm open to it, but otherwise I don't like try and like drag someone. So what are your questions about data science? You know? Um, and so, yeah, just try and be realistic with, with the time that I have. And I definitely have some, some messages that are unanswered right now. Like I'm looking at them in my queue here. I'm like, probably need to get to a couple of those. So, yeah. What's up artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to the artists of data science at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show and let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting and you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode greg what's what's uh, your strategy thank you by the way Eric. i love that you're far nicer than i am uh, <laughs> greg let's hear from you yeah um it, it's to, to, to me it's about uh um making people feel uh, valued for sure. Um, if somebody took the time uh, res to respond to a post I made, uh, whether it's a thank you or uh, gave an opinion, I try to make sure to go back to it and, and respond. Um, what I struggle with is the personal messages. And I have a quick uh, uh, test that I do when I read someone's personal message. I say, uh, Was that, is that Googleable? Like if if it's Google, I ignore it completely. I'm like, you could have taken the time to Google it and find the answer. So why ask me? So I just ignore. Um, and and I do get questions that are quite difficult, and I take some time to respond that, to to them. Uh, but in terms of post, uh, really, um, my my focus is to continue to uh, access um, different subjects from different resources and um, come up with an opinion um, uh, about it and uh, share it with uh, the world or my community. And uh, with that, I stay open to uh, constructive criticism or a simple thank you or regardless, it's about making people feel welcomed always. And uh, subconsciously, uh, the person will come back uh, for more, right? To, to be able to interact with me and give me more feedback. Uh, and, and either way, that, that helps me grow, uh, that helps the other person grow. And uh, that's what the community should be, should be about. Um, it shouldn't be about pointing the finger or uh, surfacing the things that uh, the other one is doing wrong. Uh, and it's just about, um, you know, very fruitful conversation and uh, uh, mutual learning and uh, growth. And that approach has uh, basically helped me gain a lot of engagement uh, over the past year, uh, which uh, uh, led me to, to uh, where I am today in terms of uh, the level of uh, community I was able to build under one year uh, on LinkedIn. Great advice, love it. Eric and Gregor, you guys both make me sound like a dick. Um, <laughs> but right, uh, uh, great advice. I love it. Mikiko, let's let's, uh, let's hear from you. Don't you worry, Harpreet. I'm going to come in and I'm going to make you sound 
so friendly right now. So nice. <laughs> so <you>. nice. <laughs> because my, my approach, I actually went the opposite way around. So I used to be a lot more engaged on LinkedIn. And I don't know if people had noticed this. I had actually deactivated my account for like a hot minute. And I had to reactivate because I, I was applying for like a like a part-time fellowship to whatever, right? So they're like, you need a LinkedIn account. I'm like, damn it. Okay, so I have to reactivate it. So it's only there for now. Um, I went the opposite way because I think uh, there's, I was inspired by deep work where they, he says like quit social media. Um, so, and I think there's two questions to kind of ask yourself actually um, that are sort of in line with that. And the first one is kind of like what, I don't want to say what game are you in, but uh, what is these like, the core value prop of your sort of professional arc in what is the value that you are currently bringing. So for me right now, for example, uh, my core value and considering you just start a new job is to be like a really good engineer. And for me to be a really good engineer and to, you know, my goal is to get promoted within like a year or two years, which would be considered actually very accelerated for the company I'm at. Um, that means I have to essentially be producing like certain deliverables or certain work, but I also don't want to be doing that outside of work. <laughs> So what that means is that I need to kind of maintain focus within work, uh, but more importantly, I actually need to be doing some stuff outside to continue growing in that. So I had to kind of do a quick audit and basically go, you know, what is the contribution of LinkedIn or social media or certain kinds of social media like Instagram or whatever uh, to that ultimate goal of kind of professional and personal act um, actualization, right? Uh, and then once you determine that actually, you know, you do need to be engaged on uh, a platform like LinkedIn for a certain reason, I think at that point, then you can kind of, you can kind of do another audit and go like, what are the sort of engagements that are most sort of productive, right? So all the people who would ping me and do the, hey, or how do you get into data science or all that, like they're asking for really curated, personalized advice. And I figured, uh, so Cal Newport, he has this thing where basically he doesn't put up his email address. Uh, and if you do kind of message him, you have to fill out a form and indicate what it is and he'll kind of get back to you at some point. I don't do it quite like that, but what I did was I took the top 10 common questions. I actually put it in a bunch of like medium posts or LinkedIn write-ups. And what I asked is that if people message me, um, you know, first go through and read through the links. If they still have questions, I am absolutely available to answer them. Um, but if I give them the 15, 20 minutes, they need to give me 15, 20 minutes. Because at the end of the day, it is about reciprocity and it's mutual respect. And the standards that you set for how people interact with you is exactly how they treat you. So if you are basically someone who is constantly at other people's beck and calls, if you respond to kind of low value treatment and all that other stuff, they're actually not going to respect you. It's like people paying $5 for something that is a thousand dollar value. They don't respect you. They don't respect the thousand dollar like luxury item more. Like they actually respect it at the $5 they paid it. Unless they're like some antique dealer, which they know they can then flip it for 500. But they will literally respect you at that value they set for you. So part of what you can do in terms of filtering and letting people treat you with the respect that you do deserve um, is to set that bar. And there's like a number of ways to kind of filter it. Um, but that's how I treat the personal messages. If people comment on like posts and stuff like that, I will absolutely respond to them because in a way I'm like, I put myself out there, you know, so I should be respecting that you gave me your attention and time and I'll respond to that. But if you come into my, my inbox, if you come into my inmail, I hope you're not wasting it on like a, Hey, or how'd you get into data science? And the other part too is like, you know, it's also great for content generation. Cause if you get 
ask the same like five, 10 questions, you can actually uh, create a YouTube video and you can kind of link it. So, so that's one way to turn around. But um, yeah, so actually relative to pre, I'm actually very mean because now it cuts down like all my interactions to like one or two people <laughs> like a week, which is great. I love it. Um, yeah, so there's there's all strokes for different folks, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like for me, it's just I tell people just come straight to my office hours. Like that's the only time I have. Like you can find me there, um, and that that's it. Uh, so Albert, I hope I hope you got some good answers out of this. There's a lot of great comments here in the chat. Um, look, if you guys are watching on LinkedIn, if you're watching anywhere else, the only way you can see the wonderful comments is if you join the Zoom room. Um, so you're missing out if you're not here. Um, Albert, hopefully that that answered your questions. Hopefully you got some good ideas. Uh, we've got a couple of the questions in the queue. Um, let's go to Eric and then we'll go to Mark. Okay, so I have had a, I have a Streamlit app that I have had deployed on uh, Streamlit sharing, right? But I want it to be from, a. I took the repo to be private, so it's not public anymore. And Streamlit sharing, if you want to private, you have to pay like 40 bucks a month, something like that. And I don't, I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> so I wanted to put it on Heroku, but Heroku doesn't work with SciPy. So that was the end of that for whatever reason. So um, I have been trying to deploy it on GCP. And so I'm really glad that Makiko and Mark are here um, because I can get my... I tried to deploy it on App Engine and couldn't get it to work. And so then I tried to deploy it on Cloud Run and I can get it to run on Cloud Run for like a couple of hours and then it stops working and I can, it'll load, like it'll load the page and we'll do nothing else. After, and then after that, it won't even load the page or anything like that. So a couple of questions. My first question is, what the heck is a YAML file? Like I have it, I have them and I use them and they seem to be working kind of, but I don't know what a YAML file is. <laughs> what is a YAML file? It's a good question. I always thought it was just a text file that uh, you can use to build environments. Uh, but let's hear from Makiko, uh, Makiko, Mark or Vin, uh, if you guys want to chime in here, uh, Makiko, go for it. Uh, YAML is the third language in the trifecta of Python SQL. And you know that you need to learn to be a data scientist or a machine learning engineer. Um, you can also think of it as bastardized JSON, and that's, oh, okay. that's yeah. No, 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 no. It's it, it's literally that simple. Um, and there's a funny podcast on MLOps where someone was like, "What are the languages you should learn?" He's like, and the guy's like, "Well, I could say Scala, but let's be honest, we all do everything in YAML, whether it's like you know infrastructure as code or whatever." Um, no, that's all that it is. And it basically just looks like a dictionary or a Python dict in a file. It's very, very similar. So the trick a lot of times with dealing with YAML files is just understanding like what are the like what are the keys that you need to be putting in, where are the values, and then make sure you're not accidentally putting like like parentheses around like numeric values or or something like that. Uh, so that's okay. the first one. And I'll let Mark uh, jump in on any sort of potential troubleshooting ideas. Um, I think the other the other part too that stuck out is I think Cloud Run, it was supposed to mimic, it's supposed to be very similar to AWS's like Lambda functions or the Lambda architecture. So I don't know if it's actually meant to run um, apps or to be like a fully online server. But Mark, am I, am I misreading that or do I, am I misremembering that? 
my experience with GCP has just been relegated to BigQuery for the most part. So I will not have the, the information. I'll say, for that. like, I think after reading some stuff, I, I wonder if there might be a conflict with Streamlit specifically in Cloud Run, something that has to do with a WebSocket. And I don't even know what a WebSocket is. <laughs> but I'm wondering if I'm, I'm trying to understand then, like, what's the difference between Cloud Run? App Engine and then like what's it Kubernetes Engine GKE some case Kubernetes I know that so I'm trying to understand and figure out to really understand the difference between those two and so I think there are those three I guess and so it seems like App Engine's not going to work um, and so I was wondering if anybody had any ideas about Cloud Run and what might be the problem there I have so a something quick question oh go ahead no 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 go ahead. I was about to say like. It seems like you're having two problems right now. Like one is just cloud infrastructure and the other one is putting up your Streamlit app. I guess like, could you potentially just focus on one problem? Like just a simple web page or something super simple. So you only have to focus on that just so you learn like the end-to-end -end for the cloud component. And then once you learn that, then you can make it more complex and add your Streamlit app. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've had the Streamlit app working elsewhere. And so it was like, oh, this must be easy. And then as soon as I tried to like put it into that's like round peg, square hole, whatever. <laughs> and so, yeah, maybe I do need to break it down further. Mikiko, what so were I you think, Well, I think something that helps. So, okay. Uh, so before like I got the gig at MailChimp, I had never, ever used GCP, not one bit, AWS girl. Uh, so for everyone who's, you know, on the call, who's like, oh, does it matter what like, you know, Managed service you use to get a job as an engineer or data scientist? No, actually it doesn't because they're very, very similar. Um, just GCP is a lot more curated and offering. Something that I think helps is understanding where the categories of the products fall. And so uh, Coursera has some really nice GCP courses that they've hosted. And I can, I'll, I can ping the links to you um, where they will break down the categorizations because I struggled with that at first. And the first step I think is being able to break into, break the, products down into uh, what they, so they break into data, uh, compute, is it, no, storage, compute, services, and I think orchestration. I think those are the four like broad, and there's something else. Those are like the four broadest categories of products they have in terms of the ML data science offerings. So I think that's the first step. Because once you can kind of like figure out the categorizations, then it's a question of picking within the category the right products. So mm -hmm. for example, um, very similar to AWS, AWS has a data product, a uh, Redshift, right? Uh, versus I think Iceberg, I want to say something like that, uh, where like, not Iceberg, but there's a product that AWS has where it's meant for long-term storage, very infrequent access. Glacier. Right? And Glacier. yeah, Glacier. Ah, close. It was ice water something. It's cold. Um, it was cold, I know, right? Um, versus like Redshift or uh, I forgot what was another one. Um, so GCP is actually very similar. And actually that can kind of help. If you find the dot, uh, there's been some charts where they compare like products for AWS and GCP, but literally uh, they have like a workflow of potential architectures. Mm. Um, if you're used to dealing with AWS, that can kind of help actually. Because a lot of times they will just create managed services over very similar things. So for Google, GCP, uh, GKE is Google Managed Kubernetes. So it's just a wrapper around the Kubernetes uh, open source project, right? right? AWS also has something. So I think that would be the first step is understanding the rough categorizations of the products. Then um, 
being able to relate it to any kind of existing managed service products that you have, um, and then picking appropriately. Um, and then I can also link to you one of the courses I thought that was like really useful. On That'd the be GCP great. Side. That'd be really helpful. Because, because we have GCP hosted in-house for the data scientists to show demos specifically. So I know they're able to make it work. Okay, cool. Yeah, that, that would be, that'd be really helpful. And thanks for the link, Mark. Appreciate it. Then any insight here into this issue that Eric's dealing with? Um, any? No, <laughs> all I'm going to do is ask 50 questions and probably not help <laughs> you at all. So <laughs> Mark and Mikiko have oh, oh, just probably done a whole lot more than I could. Yeah. Do, do you guys be fucking with the make files? Y'all be fucking with the make files? No, I've just been learning about them. They're, uh, they're, they're good, man. I like me a good make file. Um, is that something we should learn? Is that something data scientists should learn how to use? Vin, what do you think? No? It's not worth it? Am I just wasting my time? I, about this I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you're in data science, there's somebody else probably handling that whole process. I mean, if, yeah. you're, if you're at a startup and you're doing really, really like end-to-end -end everything, yeah, okay, you got to learn make files. But yeah, I mean, how much of this do you want to do the build too? I mean, how much of this do you really want to get into? And how much is it going to take away from, you know, the core value? Because I mean, this is what I talk to a lot of people about is you've got a core value proposition. And as a data scientist, you can dilute that by learning all sorts of these rabbit hole type concepts. And it's one of the, like, you really dilute yourself because you end up becoming more of a software developer. And that's not really your value prop. You know, you definitely need to know software development. You need to know software engineering, but you get to a point where, you know, focus on your core value. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Putting it in a perspective for me. Um, let's go to, uh, let's go to Mark's question. And after Mark's question, we got Greg. I don't see any of the questions in any of the platforms. Um, so after Greg, I think we can wrap it up, but go for it, Mark. Yeah. So, uh, I started this new thing in my career, which is really exciting. A, uh, I signed up to be a mentor for this mentorship program for data science, uh, which is really exciting. It's just something I've been wanting to do. I finally feel ready that I can be, be a mentor to someone. Um, it's all new to me, which is fun, but I'm curious, it can go either way for people who have mentored. You know, what are some things you maybe wish you did different or like set you up for success? And then to the people who haven't been a mentor, what are aspects of a great mentor you've had? Because I'm trying to be the best mentor for the people I'm helping out. That's a good question, man. Um, yeah, I mean, let, let's hear from uh, let's hear from maybe Matt or Dylan or Asha on this one or Vivian. Um, talk to us about this. What, what are some good qualities of a good mentor that you guys have had? Um, for me, the best quality of the mentor I found out is patience. <laughs> I think my mentor wanted to bang her head against the brick wall every time I asked her something that was really obvious for her. So, I mean, patience in that, you know, they learned, they know how to break things down. So, I mean, by breaking things down, breaking things down, down to the smallest concepts. So I didn't understand how classes worked in Python. And I'm just like, what is this crazy stuff that, <laughs> that she's talking to me about? But she broke it down broke it down into concepts I could understand. Like the like basically use some, use an analogy. And so she said, okay, this with oops with object oriented programming, the class is this. You're this is a group of it's a group, it's a group right here, but it's a group of tools that you can use with it. Um I forget exactly how she did it. It was it was related to <laughs> it was related to uh 
machine, a machine, a washing machine, and then a uh, uh, iron. But anyways, point is, she took the time to break it down, use a concept that I didn't understood, didn't use technical terms, and then really walked me through step by step. And then along the way, she didn't really hold my hand. I, she let me go out on my own. I made mistakes. And then she said to me, okay, this is where I have to, where she steps in. So a good mentor for me is someone who not only breaks stuff down, but they step in along the way and let you fail, fail forward. I love that. Um, definitely agree with that. Uh, Dylan, Vivian, Mikiko, Greg, anybody else? Ben, talk to us about some great mentors. Um, Vivian or, or, or Dylan, go for it. Yeah, I've, I've got one here. Um, just kind of at a more high level, kind of matching to their personality. So I'm quite a quiet, introverted person, and I needed a lot of encouragement, especially early on in my career. Um, standing up to speak in front of even one person was something that would make me kind of keel over and want to puke. So having that encouragement from someone that I respected and uh, that I'd seen them do was something that I really required. But I think it, it depends on the person and kind of matching to their personality. Um, and yeah, just kind of figuring out who they are and what, what they might need. And they, honestly, they probably won't know. I didn't know that I just needed encouragement and needed someone to kind of give me that permission. But as soon as I had that, like the first year or two of my career completely changed, I was able to, you know, actually talk to people instead of just sit there and be that data analyst that nobody knew and nobody really cared about. Um, I thinking about this, I was, I, I'm not sure that I have some like perfect nutshell of advice for you or something, but I was thinking about one of the mentors I had in college. Um, I had a professor that I really got along with. And so I ended up doing a lot of like student teaching stuff with him and he became kind of a mentor. Um, but something he would always do is like, I mean, along the encouragement route, he always saw like more potential in me than I saw in myself. And like he saw my strengths where I like was blind to them because I was too insecure or, you know, for whatever reason. And then he created opportunities for me to like expand myself. Um, and, and like, and then he was always like pushing back too. So like he'd create an opportunity for me and I'd be like, I, I can't do that. Like, what do I know? I can't do that. And then he'd be like, yes, you can, it's fine. Just do it. Like, and he'd like kind of like force me into the deep end there to like go do the thing. And then, you know, maybe I fail, maybe I did an awesome job, you know, maybe I need more handholding or something, but like either way in the doing of the thing, I gained a lot of confidence and learned a lot of things. And, you know, and I don't know, I guess I was just thinking about that principle in psychology that like they found that it's actually like your, your sense of self like follows your behavior. So like when you do a lot of things or like practice competent, you know, are engaged in things and like, either fail or like are good at it either way like when you're when you're engaged in doing things that's like it like informs your sense of self of like oh so like with data science you know like by engaging in data science whether you're successful or not like by just engaging in it all the time that's what gives you the sense of like i'm a data scientist like i'm a real data scientist is because you have that like proof in front of you of like i'm doing these things of data science and like, so that's where I get that proof from. And so like, I guess that's what I would say is like to like try to create even the smallest opportunities, like for anybody you mentor, 
to kind of like do the things that maybe they feel most insecure about or whatever, like, because by doing them, even if they fail, it's going to like inform their sense of self of like, oh, I am someone who can do machine learning or, you know, whatever thing, because, because they're engaged in it. I love this. This is all, all excellent. Uh, Asha, go for it. The best thing that my mentor did for me was not hold my hand. I mean, initially, this was frustrating. I'd come with a problem. I'm like, I have this problem. Can you help me? Then he'll be like, what do you think the problem, the answer is? I'm like, I came to you with this problem because I don't know it. But this helped me. This helped me with the research. Like I learned how to research on problems. And the best thing I think I learned from all this is the best thing I was told is you need to learn how to fail fast. You need to fail and fail, but fail very fast so that you can move forward. But if you don't fail, you'll never learn. You need to fail fast. That was the best advice I got. Fail and fail very fast. I love it. Thank you, Asha. Uh, Bikiko, go for it. Yeah, I mean, so one thing I'll say is that a, a mentor, you know, a mentoring relationship is a little bit weird. In not, and, and I don't mean, I don't mean inappropriate. I mean, it's a little bit odd because we relate to patterns in our lives, right? So some people try to liken a mentorship to like a parent relationship, right? Or, you know, a relationship with a commanding officer, like, you know, in a, in a hierarchy or something like that, right? And it's a little bit weird because on the one hand, you are in some ways being entrusted with someone's like deepest wishes and hopes for their future. And that's a very, I don't want to say fragile thing, it is an act of trust, right? So you want to respect that trust. On the other hand, uh, mentees are not your family. They can they can eventually be family and friends, but they are not that from the get-go. And so sometimes it's hard to remember those boundaries because something can happen in their lives and you, and you want to help, you want to get involved, but it's kind of like, you know, helping anyone. There is a very, very deep rabbit hole you could go down. Um, and at the end of the day, you still need to maintain your own like mental health, your own boundaries, you know. So I think the three pieces of advice I'd give um, is first off, uh, understand your mentee, really understand their personality, really understand their hopes and dreams, what they want to get out of it. And try to, I don't want to say custom tailor your approach to them in that regard, but understand that, you know, for certain sort of personality types or you know, where people are in their career, um, some approaches will work better than others. So you don't want to lay down the hammer if they are feeling really fragile. Their family has said to them, you know, what the hell are you doing? Why'd you quit your job to go, you know, transition into another career? That is not the time to go hammer down on them. Um, that might be later once they built up a little bit more and they're bought in and you kind of like haze them in. That's when you, you know. Um, so uh, like understand who they are, understand their personalities. Um, and, and really kind of have them focus on their dreams. The second piece is that you cannot be doing the work for them. It's like bodybuilding and like, it, like training someone to be a bodybuilder. Uh, they ultimately have to have that motivation deep down and you will not give that to them. What you can do is you can unlock that permission to you know dream, that permission to feel like they can do it, but you cannot be giving that them that permission. Um, or sorry, you cannot be giving them the actual motivation itself. They have to feel that. They have to want that. But when you do have those mentees, those are the best because they want it. And they're like, yes, like help us get to where we need to go. 
Uh, thirdly, I think the other thing to remember is that where they want to go and need to go will not always be where you think they should go. So make sure to, you know, make sure to be aware of like, you know, your bias or like their dreams. Um, and then I'd say the fourth is you can always sort of like lay down, lay down boundaries. It's very, very important. It's important for them. Um, actually, in the fifth one, sorry, I'm talking a lot, um, is uh, teach them skills, like, you know, like teach them how to fish, don't fish for them. Uh, so help them understand how to ask good questions, how to troubleshoot, da, da, da. Don't go troubleshooting on overstack for them. Don't do that. Uh, but help them understand, like, what are our approaches or what are processes or structures or frameworks that they can then use to proceed. Um, those are the five mistakes I personally made when I was a DSD. When I was at DCJ. So, you know, um, I've made all those before. So, you know, and yeah, it's, you don't always get it right on the first or second or third or fourth try, but. Let's do this. Let's, let's hear from, uh, thank you, Makiko, by the way. Let's hear from Matthew. He's got some great comments in there. Then from Matthew, we'll go to Greg and then we'll, we'll go from Greg's response to this right into your question that you had. Uh, Matthew, go for it. Oh, yeah. No, I just said in the comments that uh, eventually, the if you have a good mentor they you end up becoming their equal and yes i heard al <laughs> rule of two so i thought that's it <laughs> i don't yeah but the point the point is is that the mentor is for me at least with my mentor she told me is that my point here is to get you to the point that i you can kind of challenge me so i'm not mentoring you so that I can, I, i'm mentoring you because i want to help you but i'm also mentoring you so that i can have a gut check so when you get to the point where where you're not my equal, but you can actually understand what I'm doing, then you can tell me, hey, you know, this is what, are you sure you're doing this right? Are you doing this wrong? She, she told me that I'm mentoring you because I'm trying to learn how, I, I'm trying to have someone who not only can gut check me, but can make me feel like they can challenge, push me farther. And if I mentor you to the point that I, that you can actually do that, then I'm doing my job, she said. Thank you very much. Matt, uh, Greg, let's go to you. Yeah, um, for me, uh, a good mentor is actually someone who can help um, the mentee on the road to self-discovery uh, without explicitly saying, oh, you will be X, Y, Z in 10 years. You um build an environment for that person to discover on their own and with that the way i see it is um the mentor is like a simulation um simulation in the sense of um by mikiko uh simulation in the sense of uh testing different questions and uh running them through the mentor before actually trying it that's how i like to think about that relationship really when you need a mentor is because you have different questions, you're not sure about uh, whether you should act on them or, or not. Um, and a mentor gives you some sort of simulated um, outcomes or outputs uh, if you select point, uh, you know, option A, B, C, et cetera. So in that case, um, you know, to me, uh, a mentor who allows that person to explore the possibilities before that person takes action is to me a good mentor. Another piece of that too is once you decide to be a mentor, always make sure to 
look for an opportunity to mentor someone outside of your of what you already know. Mentoring also is you growing. How about as a data scientist, you mentor someone who's non-technical? That helps you learn more about yourself as well. You're helping another person learn more about your world and you're learning about their world. You start finding the common points, you start tinkering with ideas, and you both grow. A mentorship, a mentor-mentee relationship should be back and forth. Growth doesn't only happen at the mentee side, on the mentee side. It should be on the mentor side as well. So don't get bogged down by, oh, I need to only mentor somebody who's in the same type of structure or department as I am. Think about that growth mindset as a mentor as well and grow with that. Um, yeah, so with that, I know, uh, Asha, you may have a, a, a comment or question, but I, I'll let you go and then I can ask my question yeah. uh, and then we can take it from there. Go for it, Asha. Uh, no, sorry, if you're not finished on the topic, I was going to push the topic away from the mentorship. So if you have anything on the mentorship, feel free to finish it before I ask. I think Greg's going to jump into his question uh, and then we can, we can tack you on right after Greg. How's that sound? Cool. Perfect. All right, cool. I'll come yeah, right yeah. back. No, no problems. So my question was about uh, a sniff test. So what is what are the sniff tests that you would do as a data scientist on a an AI startup uh, early stage that you think will be uh, will have a competitive uh, edge or advantage um, that you either want to join or invest in? What are the quick sniff tests that you can do to understand where they are and where you think they will be five, 10 years from now? Does the startup sound like it's solving a problem that I've had that I didn't find a solution for before, but you guys are solving it? That that to me is like my sniff test. Like, is, is this thing solving a actual problem that I've had or people I know have had? Um, that's that's kind of my my sniff test. Vin, what about you? Best one I heard, and I think Besmer was the one who published this one a couple of years back, is they said that uh, for them to ev evaluate investing in a startup, they needed to see one of two things, novel model, novel data set. And if they don't see one of those two things, they don't see like a walled garden, they don't see any sort of competitive advantage. And so uh, that for me has always been kind of the, the first question that I'll ask is what's unique. Do you have access to unique data that nobody else has? And normally the answer is no. You know, do you really have a unique or novel model? Have you discovered something that nobody's discovered before? And normally the answer is no. And from there, you can kind of have a more honest conversation because then you take the buzzword out and it's like, okay, so what'd you do? You know, because now you're dealing with a traditional software company and yeah, they're using machine learning. There are models there. They're using data but they're really more of a traditional software company paradigm. And you can evaluate the investment or, you know, look at the implications of their technology in that sort of a paradigm using traditional rules. But when you actually get, because every once in a while you get a company that does have a unique data set, they have access to data or they've been able to curate a data set nobody else has. From there, I really want to see what they've built and dive into product. You know, because a lot of the time, that a startup, startups have a limited amount of money. And so you can either build amazing data, build amazing model or build a product. And typically you can't do two of those. And so a lot of the time when I find that this is a company that's, it's got something unique, it's got something that's going to be a competitive advantage for them, at least midterm. I look at the product and it's like, ah, this is not here yet. 
And then it's kind of seeing, do they have a path to get this to market? Do they have a path to get this to the point where it's usable, meets business needs? And so that's kind of where I go is, you know, try to branch it into one of two directions and then figure out from there how to assess it. So it's, it's interesting that you talk about novel model. And from a novel model, you don't mean that prior to that uh, startup uh, launching, they did not necessarily spend some time researching, uh, transforming, studying that data and creating some sort of model that nobody else has. Or it could be, you know, a regular or do you mean that it's uh, a brand new algorithm or do you mean that it's an existing algorithm that's structured or architectured differently from what we already know out there? No, I'm looking for novel. I mean, brand new. They've discovered something that hasn't been generally figured out. It's rare. But every once in a while, you see a startup that's figured something out. And then you have to ask yourself, how long is it going to take for someone else to figure out the same thing that they have? And that's, you know, it's the two pieces of the evaluation. There are a lot of novel model architectures that don't get published. You know, we have, we're kind of used to seeing all of you know, Google's and everybody else's models, but the stuff they know, like they're bleeding edge in most large tech companies, that's not published. And so even though we think, oh, these models here are bleeding edge, no, they're not. I mean, they're usually three years, maybe more than that, sometimes old. And so there are tons of model architectures out there that are not published, that have not really been explored, especially in reinforcement learning. There's so much down that line of evaluation from an architecture standpoint that hasn't been published, that is novel, that's being used in some small startups right now to solve some really interesting problems. And so, no, I'm looking at actual novelty. It's new. They've discovered something. Thank you. Mark, go for it. Yeah, <clears throat> this example is more so come from one of my uh, lessons learned in the last time I tried to build a product and, and business model around it. Um, we created our pitch deck and we were, you know, trying to talk to the Greggs of, of the world. And so to prepare for that, I went to my friend uh, who was a VC and said like, hey, you want to just practice our pitch, please tear into us, right? And VCs are great at that. Um, and so we, we did it and he said, honestly, I'm not going to, I would, I want to invest in this. And the reason why is you didn't communicate to me the sense of urgency as to why this needs to happen right now. Uh, and that really just took, like really shifted my perspective of how I pitch, pitch things um, and how I build products and what I build on. Because like, I can build a really novel thing and that's really cool. But like, if people don't need to purchase it right now, then like, why, why are they going to invest, invest in it? Um, and so that was kind of a key, key moment for me, um, for, for my friend. Um, and I think that's, the urgency component may not be for like product success, but for getting buy-in from people to put money into your idea, that's where they need to get into because you want to leave the investor thinking, wow, I, if I don't put money in this right now, I'm really going to miss out. And so how have they been able to communicate the sense of urgency that this is a new idea, they're, they're new to market or they have a competitive advantage, but more importantly, they have a large enough customer base that will purchase as soon as possible. Uh, this is something I'll be taking uh, notes on for sure. Uh, Greg, if I can also recommend, um, uh, so Naval Ravigant um, and Baba Nivi, uh, just you know, Naval and Nivi, they, uh, they're co-founders of AngelList. Um, they have a podcast called Spearhead. It's like maybe two hour long 
episode spearhead and it's all about uh how to become a vc um, or how to invest in startups and how to identify startups um, i found that to be super super insightful just you know as somebody who's not a startup investor just listen to them talk about it and break the game down i think you might enjoy that so definitely check that out um let's go into asha's question and um then we'll probably wrap it up after that go for it asha um so um i recently started working on financial risk analysis and this is not my forte by a long shot so i've been reading up and looking up new resources as to where to go to a lot of them have been behavioral models and scorecards i just wanted to know if there's any resource, other resources you could point me to that are, i'm looking through yes for sure but if you have any other resources that you could point me to i'd be so glad especially in financial risk analysis to be specific with very huge portfolios uh have you looked at any like the cfa um study materials or anything like that for the cfa exams yes yes for sure i have but any other book you yeah. would or tutorial i would be um i've, I've got one happy anything yeah i got one sitting on my shelf we'll go grab it in a second but from you know if anybody has any insight real quick uh definitely help asha out here um i've got one sitting on my desk i just got to figure out uh, where it's at my bookshelf here uh vin vivian russell greg any any tips or advice on this one all right uh, hold on give me one second let me grab this book real quick could you quickly repeat the question again oh i'm sorry i speak so fast sometimes um so i've recently started doing financial risk analysis and the portfolios i'm dealing with are like really huge customer like the customer base is really huge so they and they're all urgent all at once we're dealing with like a customer base of like 27 million so on top of the financial risk analysis which is not by forte by a long shot i'm also dealing with behavioral models i was just asking if there are any resources on financial risk analysis you could point me to i mean i have a few but any plus would be a better yeah so i'm i'm looking through this so this is uh, models for quantifying risk this is i took this uh, when i was studying for actuarial exam four um and just looking at the chapter titles i don't know if this will be that related there's like you know there's chapter one review of interest theory review of probability uh, markov chains stochastic simulations survival models life table contingent payment models um does any of this sound familiar to what you're working on uh contingent annuity models funding plans for contingent contracts uh things like that uh it's it's heavy on like it's it's all just like it it's probability linear algebra simulations and shit like that um i don't know if this is how in depth you need to go like like can we look at this stuff there's like derivatives in here uh so i don't know if this is well suited for your particular use case but uh maybe i think you can if you're enterprising enough you can find the pdf of this online for free uh so this is fourth edition and mind you like i was an actuary over 8 years ago so there's probably edition 8 by now uh but models for quantifying risk thank you i'll definitely check it out yeah it's the best that's the best one i got um just a quick thing you can look up and I'm, I'm, i'm just throwing out a term that i'm i'm just aware of take it with a grain of salt but the fog behavioral model um I was, the reason why I say look up that term is I just looked that up and then you could probably find related resources to point you in the right direction to learn about behavior models. Yeah. 
the, the tiny habits framework for uh, behavior modification. Yeah, that's uh, so the behavioral model I'm looking at will be in regards to creating scorecards as to how you can group a risky customer when it comes to loans and a good customer and middle. That's what I'm looking at for now, but I'll definitely look it up. Thank you. Quantify like risk profiles type of thing. Describe, quantify risk profiles. Maybe look up those type of words. Uh, I feel like this this will definitely be overkill for what you're trying to do then. Uh, so definitely look it up, see if you can find a PDF, see if it's helpful, but this is probably going to be way too uh, out of scope for you. Um, Russell, uh, are you looking at the QR, QCRA Monte Carlo analysis for financial risk? Uh, distribution can be key in the analysis. Yeah, sorry, Ash, I don't have much else for you. All right, guys, uh, Russell, go for it. I see you're unmuted there. Yeah, I was just, I'm just going to um, clarify that. So QCRA is a quantitative um, uh, cost risk analysis. Um, so if you're looking at your model, and I'm, I'm talking about uh, uh, not a not a coded model or an ML model, but the model of the actual entities themselves. Uh, and usually for, for QCRA, you'll be looking at the risks and perhaps scheduled material as well, so you understand exactly how the uh, the entities are um, performing that the risks are associated with. And then Monte Carlo is just running, you know, thousands of simulations to work out the probability of things um, happening on time and then uh, playing around with those and then the distribution of those. Um, so where you've got, uh, um, I forget all the names of the distributions, but, you know, you guys work with data science, you know, there's one, at least 10, 10 types of distribution curves that can come in there. Uh, and I was just typing something else in. PERT analysis is also another thing that comes in whereby, if you've got a, a minimum, maximum, and mid-range value, uh, you times the mid-range value by three or six and add it to the um, uh, to the minimum and maximum, and then divide by six to get a slightly better um, actual cost impact from it. So all of those are are skills that are used in risk analysis itself that maybe you can um, take forward into your modeling also. Yeah, uh, where's Carlos? Yeah, get in touch with Carlos Mercado. Tell him a uh, heartbeat since you, uh, he might be able to help you out there. Um, all right, guys, well, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Be sure to tune into the episode I did with James freaking Altisher, the one and only James Altisher. Uh, I mean, that, that's huge for me. Next week, I got an episode with John Sfiokla, who wrote The Self Made Billionaire Effect. Uh, that's a book that I literally have read like three times, listened to twice on Audible. It is an amazing book definitely check that out i think you'll enjoy that episode again man thanks for joining everybody thanks everybody that joined us on live streams thanks for all your questions if you are missing out on the chat then you need to come into the zoom room next time guys take care remember you've got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everyone